We don't like to be stuck. No one likes to be stuck. And yet, so many times in life, that's exactly where we find ourselves. Totally stuck in the muck. And there's various kinds of muck that we find ourselves in and find ourselves stuck in. Uh, This summer, we were at Bush Gardens as part of our family vacation, and we did what everybody does. You know, you wait an hour and a half to ride a two- or three-minute long ride. And we were at the newest ride that Bush Gardens had. It was uh, the Dark Castle or the Dark Tower. I can't remember the name now. That's how good it was. Uh, and we were up there. We waited and waited an hour and a half. And we get there. And finally, it's time to ride the ride. And I'm with Aiden, who's excited because he can finally ride rides. This is the first summer he's been able to ride the big rides. And so he's all excited. And we get on, and the overhead bar doesn't come down. So I'm sitting there. This is great. And wouldn't come down, wouldn't come down. Well, the people behind us, they couldn't get the bars up. And so we figure out, all of us figure out really quickly, okay, there's an issue. So... We get off, and the other car comes up, and a kid that's behind us, he can't get off the car. Like, he's trying. You know, he's lifting the bar. The bar won't come up. And so he's looking around, and everybody else is off, and they're trying to get the bar off, and they don't get it off. And this poor kid is just sitting there, and you see him. He's starting to even shake uh, because nothing's happening. No matter what they do, they can't get, it, get the bar off of him. And so he's just sitting there on the car, stuck. And it ended up being about 45 minutes. He's sitting there just stuck, and the whole thing is shut down. They had to go underneath the ride and undo one of the cars and take it away. And uh, then he gets off, and everybody claps, you know, and it ends up being all right. But it wasn't fun for that kid being stuck, and his dad's over there, you know, on the side, you know, kind of wringing his hands, like, what's going to happen here? And uh, it all worked out, but being stuck was not fun. How many of you have been stuck in an airport for a long time? Yeah, that's fun, right? Especially if it ends up being overnight. Yeah, that's, that's happened. It's, it's not fun. Nobody wants that. Stuck in traffic. We don't usually have that problem around here. We might think we have a lot of traffic. No. We really don't know what traffic is like here, folks. We, we don't really have a clue. Um, really being stuck in traffic, it's not fun at all. Nobody likes that. Being stuck is not a good thing, and very little good comes out of it. Jonah was a prophet who very much was stuck. He was stuck in the muck. After he has been swallowed up by this big fish, we don't know what kind of fish it was, uh, so that the little flannel graphs, you know, that show the whale, we don't know that it was a whale. It was a really big fish, that's all we know. And it swallowed Jonah up, and there he is, alive, in the fish, um, being surrounded by the muck of all that the fish has swallowed ahead of Jonah, and he's there for three days and three nights. Not a very good resort location, you know, not something you'd sign up for. But there he is. And in the midst of this time, somewhere along the line, he prays. He, he actually turns his attention to God. And this passage that we're going to be in today, as we finish up our practical prayer series, 
This section, this prayer of Jonah's in Jonah 2, 1 through 9, that's where we're going to be, by the way. Jonah 2, 1 through 9, that's the first part of the prayer we're going to look at. Uh, That has long been held up as this beautiful and wonderful expression of repentance and sorrow for sin and Jonah turning from his, his attitude and his rebellion. But my question to you today is, is it really? Is it really? Is this really an example of repentance that you no doubt have heard that it is for so many years over and over as you've heard this very familiar passage preached or taught? Is it really an example of repentance or is it something else? Jonah 2, 1 through 9 is where we're going to look at. And pretty much this whole prayer is a quotation from the psalm. So what is said is right. What is said is true. What is expressed is true. And it is beautiful. It's full of beautiful poetic form, and and it certainly expresses truths about God, and and that, that part is a good thing. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it true of Jonah? And is what he's expressing here, is it really a sign of a turned heart, a repentant heart? So look at this with me, Jonah 2, 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. Uh, It should be pretty easy for you to follow along with whatever you've got in front of you. Jonah 2, 1 through 9. Jonah's been in the fish now for this time. And here's what the Word of God says. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. This is a paraphrase of Psalm 120, verse 1. So he's quoting directly from the Psalms. He's kind of applying it, you know, to his situation, his circumstance. I like how Jonah phrased that, from the belly of Sheol, which, you know, he's in the belly of a fish, and he's saying, this might as well be Sheol. This might as well be the depths of death. This might as well be the grave for me. That's where I am, and it's just a matter of time before I actually go to Sheol. But from this place, I I cry out to the Lord. He answered me. This is presumptive of Jonah. He's saying, I am assuming that God's going to answer me. He, he, you know, he heard my voice and you respond. Verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. That's a direct quote from Psalm 42.7. But let's back up for a second. For you cast me into the deep? Really, Jonah? Now, God is sovereign. Do you agree with that? God is sovereign? He's sovereign over all of our circumstances, all of our situations. He sovereignly directs even our own foolish choices. Absolutely. So there's no question on that. But... Is Jonah here recognizing and praising God's sovereignty? Or is he just wondrously, shockingly, actually accusing 
God for the situation Jonah finds himself in. I want to suggest to you it's the latter. This is Jonah saying, By the way, God who hears me when I'm in the belly of Sheol, I want to remind you of something. I'm here because of you. You put me in this situation. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. As if he hadn't just previously said to the sailors when they realized that the storm was because of Jonah, and they said, what are we going to do to to fix this? What are we going to do to spare our lives from the storm? Jonah, instead of repenting from his rebellion, which he could have done right there on the ship, he could have stopped, he could have said, this is my fault and the solution, I've got it, I need to go back down into where I was asleep, and instead of sleeping, I need to do some praying, and I need to do some repenting, and it would have all gone away, I guarantee it. But no, what did he say? He said, throw me overboard, kill me. I'm, I'm a prophet of Yahweh, you know, like, be impressed by that. I'm a Hebrew, but I am running from my God. And this has all come upon us because I'm running and I'm rebelling. And instead of repenting, it's throw me into the sea, just, just get rid of me, kill me. And I, I think that you'll be okay. Well, God uh, kind of used that, obviously, you know, to stop the storm and cause the sailors to turn to him. But that wasn't the end for Jonah. He expected fully to be dead, and yet instead he's devoured but not dead. And here he is in this situation, and it's still directly because of his own rebellion. But for you, cast me into the deep, he says. Then he throws in some scripture for good measure. (laughs) Verse 4, Then I said, So he's recounting his prayer. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. We need to stop there too and kind of scratch our heads for a second and look deeper into the historical facts here. Because Jonah lived in the northern part of the kingdom, the split kingdom of Israel, Israel and Judah, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. Jonah lived in the northern kingdom. Not only did he live in the northern kingdom, where they worshipped in Dan, by the way, that's where they worshipped. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in Judah. They didn't go to Judah. They didn't go to Jerusalem. That was a no-no. You know, that was too far across the tracks. They didn't go there. They had their own place of worship. So he wasn't ever in Jerusalem at the temple. So that's the first, whoop, whoop. You know, that's the first siren, the first red flag. Secondly, he was the prophet for not a good and righteous king that made sure the people worshipped Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He was Jeroboam's prophet, and Jeroboam was one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history that made all sorts of, of horrible idolatry as part of the worship for the people of Israel. Encouraged them to worship all kinds of different gods, set up all sorts of different monuments and idols, and I mean, just a bad, bad dude. And this is who Jonah was directly under and, and serving and working for. And we saw he actually made sure he prophesied in favor of Jeroboam, even though Amos had to come back later and say, no, 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 that, that's not actually the case. But yet again I shall look upon your holy temple? Well, Jonah, the problem is you weren't looking upon his holy temple to begin with. So there's some suspect stuff going on here. 
Verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Some, again, some, some presumption going on there. This is another uh, example of Jonah quoting from the Psalms, from God's Word that he knew. Psalm 69, 1-2 through 2 is where we really see verses 5-6 through 6 in the portion of the prayer there. Then verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. There that phrase is again. This is from Psalm 18:6. Then verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Remember whose kingdom Jonah is part of and the culture he's part of and the people that he's living amongst. Certainly though, this in his mind, we can assume, and fairly accurately, that he was referring to the people of Nineveh that he hated, that he was going away from that he was supposed to preach judgment against in order for them to repent. Verse 9, But I, look at the contrast there, verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, even though I was rebellious and running from you and doing the exact opposite of all you commanded and tried to commit suicide rather than submit to you, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. When did you vow this? What did you vow? Now maybe, maybe while he's down there in the dark and the sloshing around of the sea and the seaweed and the stench and you know getting incredibly seasick and bleached from the acidic juices from the fish, Maybe in the midst of all that, he did have a, quote, come to Jesus moment where he said, okay, God, if you get me out of this, I promise, I promise, I promise, you know, the foxhole prayer. Maybe he did. Salvation, he says there at the end, after saying he will with a voice of thanksgiving sacrifice and what he vows he will pay. Salvation, he says, he ends the prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3, verse 8. So, taking this, taking a step back, looking at this as a whole, this prayer and everything that's expressed and, and all the Scripture that Jonah makes sure he inserts and he quotes. I mean, again, as I said at the beginning, all of what he said is true. What he said of God is true. What he said is right. Those Scriptures were right and profound and beautiful. But, dot, dot, dot. In the 80s, Wendy's started an ad campaign. They came up with a slogan that was incredibly popular. And it not only did it drive their sales up, but it actually became kind of this cultural statement. Um, many of you will remember it. Some of you won't. The slogan was, where's the beef? And they did that as a direct poke at all their rivals at McDonald's and Burger King and on Hardee's and all those other places saying basically, don't go to them. They're not going to give you very much for your money. Come to Wendy's. We've got the beef. And it was this 
kind of little old cranky lady, you know, and she'd get the hamburger from one of the other places. Where's the beef? And so it was highlighting that come to Wendy's if you really want the good stuff, if you really want the meat. And so what we should all ask about Jonah's prayer here, cutting through the niceties, cutting through even the scriptural quotations, we should say, Jonah, where's the beef? Where's the meat of your prayer? Where's what you should really be expressing here? Let's remind ourselves of who Jonah has shown himself to be and what he has done. God says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it for all of their wickedness. Insert parentheses, not so I can just strike them dead, though I'm willing to do that, but so that they will repent and turn from me so that I don't strike them with judgment. And instead of Jonah going to Nineveh in obedience and submission to God, he goes the farthest opposite he can. And he refuses to repent, rather would commit suicide. And then finally, you know, surrounded in the situation he's in, he does offer up this prayer of kind of this half-hearted, kind of close to repentance, but not really repentance prayer. And the question is, where's the confession? Where's the repentance? He says a lot, but if you will look closely, nowhere in this prayer does he say, I have sinned. You are right to judge me. I deserve judgment now. And therefore, how could I ever have have prejudice and bias against the people of Nineveh? When he says, what I vowed I will pay, it should have been, I vow to to turn from my rebellion and I vow to be used of you and I vow to be an instrument to turn the people of Nineveh to the repentance that I now offer. That's what we should have heard, what he should have expressed. Nowhere. There is a prayer of thanksgiving, assuming and presuming that God is going to get him out of this bind that he's in because, after all, I am your prophet. After all, I I deserve that. God's not going to treat me bad. I mean, I'm Jonah. I'm his prophet. Jonah, Jonah felt that it was a done deal that he was going to be delivered. So he's in advance thanking him for this deliverance that he didn't deserve. He's celebrating the grace of God without repenting first. And we know this is the case. This is not me being too harsh and, and too hard on Jonah. All that I am saying here and pointing out in this this criticism is warranted because of what we see in his next prayer. So we're going to skip ahead to Jonah chapter 4. And most of you, if not all of you, know the story of Jonah well enough to know what happened after this. God, in his amazing grace, did respond to Jonah. He shouldn't have. Jonah didn't deserve that. But God does respond. He prompts in His sovereignty, He prompts the great fish to regurgitate His resident. He vomits Jonah out, and that would have been pretty, right? Out to the shore. And here's Jonah, and and he's all covered with all this stuff, and very likely his skin is bleached white. And Jonah does make his way to Nineveh which, by the way, uh, 
the, the name of Nineveh basically works out, you can work it out in the original language to fish town. And the people of Nineveh, their deities were fish gods. They worshipped Dagon and, and another deity that were basically forms of fish, and they, they worshipped the god of the sea. And so everything about them uh, was, was elevating, you know, the the fish and the sea and everything. And so here's, again, here's God's sovereignty and his sense of humor that he has a great fish swallowing Jonah and then vomiting him out close to the shore. Um, he still had to walk quite a ways into Nineveh, but it stands to reason, you, you can kind of put your mind here and imagine this scene, that there were fishermen and people from Nineveh around the sea because that would have been their trade as well. And maybe, just maybe, I think likely, they saw, they witnessed the fish spitting out Jonah. I mean, you can't prove that. I can't prove that. That's not said in Scripture, but I can see it. And I could see talk getting around and rumors getting around. And as he comes in to the town smelling like fish and bleached white, looking like probably some sort of version of divinity, and he gives his message in the language would have been five words, And sure enough, what happened? They respond. They repent. They fast. The king gets down from his throne. He humbles himself. That's all in Jonah 3. They actually repent. And then we pick up in Jonah chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3 is is all we're going to look at from the text itself. Jonah 4, 1 through 3. So, here is... Nineveh, they've repented. God is saying, I, I've recognized their repentance. I'm relenting from the judgment that I was about to pour out on them. I'm not going to destroy them because they've humbled themselves. They've repented. I accept that. I am glad about that. But here's what the text says about this, quote, prophet of God. And this is how we know that what was prayed in the fish wasn't really genuine and was lacking of repentance and of the the heart that a true prophet or messenger of God should have. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally, in the original language, this was Jonah considered it the thing that God, like his, his failing to judge, his responding to the repentance of Nineveh, Jonah considered it exceedingly evil. Think about that. Nineveh repents. They respond to his five-word message. God's going to judge you if you don't repent. Really? Wow, we better repent. And they do. I mean, what preacher or missionary do you know that preaches the message that they're supposed to preach goes out and faithfully presents the Word of God, calls people to repent, and when they do, instead of throwing a party and praising God and being happy about it and saying, thank God that this happened, thank you for using me in this way, using me as your instrument through which you brought people to yourself, instead of saying that, they say, how could you do this, God? It's evil that that you've allowed them to repent. That's what Jonah did. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, the repentance of Nineveh, the responding of God to their repentance. He considered that exceedingly evil. 
and he was angry. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord. Here's the second prayer. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, and I'll please focus in on this prayer. Don't miss a single part of this prayer. This should just blow your mind at the true depravity on display in Jonah. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which is a direct quotation also from Scripture. And it's, it's hesed, which is the steadfast, faithful, loyal love of God, which defines His whole character. So he's saying, because you are the God of hesed, and I knew that, That's why I ran from you. I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, Yeah, Jonah, you personally benefited from that just a few days ago. Therefore, now, O Lord, Please, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? Here's what Jonah is doing. He is shaking his fist up in the face of God, and he's saying, this is all your fault. My rebellion is warranted. The fact that I fled from you in the first place, I was right to do that. Because I knew if I came and I preached this message, I knew you, because you're so weak in your mercy, and you're so willing to forgive that you would do that, and my sworn enemies, my sworn enemies would get mercy instead of judgment. You see, that's what he really wanted. Jonah wanted Nineveh to die. He was so nationalistic. He was so proud of his Jewish heritage and national identity. And he hated the Assyrians so much that he was only willing to preach the message if it resulted in wrath from God and judgment instead of forgiveness and redemption. He deemed the Ninevites so unworthy of redemption that the only way he was willing to preach was if it resulted in their destruction. And when that didn't happen, and when God forgave and showed mercy and grace, he flew into a rage and said, if you're going to be like that, I'd rather die than serve you. If you're going to be that merciful, well, that's just too much for me. Let me off here. Thank you very much. Go ahead and kill me because I don't want to know you I don't want to serve you. I don't want to worship a God that's willing to forgive people like the Assyrians. All through this series, we've looked at practical prayers, and we've, we've tried to draw practical things from the prayers that we need to implement and apply in our own lives, and our own prayer lives, that should teach us and show us and strengthen us in our relationship with God, right? Well, as we end this series with this, this is an example of a prayer that really shouldn't be part of your prayer. 
This is how not to be. And, and in that, it still is practical. We still gain a lot of practical teaching from a very unfortunate prophet and an unfortunate prayer that lacked a lot of what it should have contained. But it still shows us a lot, still teaches us a lot if we'll let it. Here's the first thing that I want to share with you that Jonah shows us and what we can glean from his pitiful, pitiful, tragic display. And that's that knowing God's Word, knowing God's Word should result in a transformed heart. Knowing God's Word should result in a transformed heart. Jonah knew a lot of God's Word, obviously. I mean, he was there in the, in the belly of this fish. He probably didn't have, you know, he, he didn't have any light. He didn't have any scrolls to unroll. Everything he quoted was from memory. He recalled it from memory, and that's great, right? I mean, Jonah knew God's Word. Yay! But what did it do to his heart? Obviously nothing. It didn't actually impact or change his heart. And my friends, church, everybody, listen to me. God's Word cannot be limited to our head or our lips. We can't just know God's Word up here. We can't just be able to spout His Word in our words. It's not enough to just know it. It's not enough to speak it. I mean, those are good things. Know God's Word, certainly. Memorize it. Be able to say it and recall it. Those are great things. But if it's limited to just our head or even limited to our speech and it doesn't go down into our hearts and change our hearts and direct our lives, then we're missing the point. Jonah was an example of what God said about Israel in Isaiah 29.13 and what Jesus later quoted about the Pharisees. These people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's certainly true of Jonah. We see that. May that not be true of us. Oh, may that not be true of you or me. May we be guarded against that. Second thing we see from Jonah and his very lacking prayer and what it shows us about his true heart is that it's possible to know what God is like and still be nothing like Him. And this is very scary because of how easy it is to be this way. How easy it is to fall into that trap. It's possible to know what God is like and still be nothing like Him. And certainly we see that in Jonah. I mean, you see that, right? He knew all about God. He even said that. I knew we would do this. I knew what kind of God you were. That's why I ran. I knew you'd be faithful. I knew you'd be merciful, slow to anger. I knew you'd be quick to forgive. I knew that's how you were like, but I didn't want any part of that. I want judgment. I want wrath. I want vengeance on the Assyrians for all they've done to our people. In addition to being obviously unrepentant, Jonah is obviously legalistic as well. He's dealing in this transactional approach to God, which is what legalism does. If I am a certain way, if I, if I fill in the blanks, if I do a certain duty, 
If I say the right things, pray the right prayers, then God, you are obligated to respond according to what I want. I will be right with you, and I will have what I want from you and what I need. You'll like me. Everything would be good so long as I do fill in the blank. That's also the problem with the prosperity gospel, by the way. I have enough faith, I say the right things, I claim enough promises, which are usually out of context. And God must and will respond. But the moment He doesn't deliver, the deal's off. That's legalism. And that's what we see on display here, along with a very unrepentant heart. And this is where we need to be careful about being too hard on Jonah and, and doing the same thing Jonah did, with, which is to be puffed up with this arrogance. Because here's the thing, and, and you know what I'm about to say. You know this. It's easy to rejoice when we receive grace from God, right? We're really happy about that. Yay! Praise God for His grace. But... It can also, like Jonah, it can also be easy to resent when God shows the same grace to people that we don't like or we don't approve of or people that we feel have wronged us personally. Be careful, Christian, because it's very easy to go the way of Jonah. Very easy. But when we truly understand God's grace, that kind of attitude has no place in our hearts. Here's the third and the final thing I want to share with you from Jonah's example. No one has a monopoly on God's grace. No one has a monopoly on God's grace. When we truly experience God's salvation, I mean, we really do. We really experience personally God's salvation. And when we truly understand how amazing God's grace really is, like it goes beyond the song that we all know and sing so much, Amazing Grace, when we actually get how amazing God's grace is and the fact that, I mean, the very definition of grace is something undeserved, unmerited, the unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness of God, when we get that, then we will never think, we will never think for a moment that anyone deserves it less than we do. When we really experience and understand God's grace personally, and we understand there's never a time where we deserve it ourselves, We will never, ever, ever think anyone else deserves it less than we do. We will never look at anyone and say, they are unredeemable. Because we will know that but for grace, I was unredeemable. And I am unredeemable apart from grace. And to that end and to reiterate that fact, I want to leave you with Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. the most powerful description in Scripture of the amazing grace of God. And as we look at this, I want to remind you, apart from this, I mean, this describes 
what we see in the opening verses describe what I'm going to say in just a second. And apart from grace, it will always be true of us that all of us are just like Jonah in the fact that we are, too, in the belly of Sheol. Just like Jonah found himself in a helpless and hopeless situation, in the dark, in death, that is what describes every single one of us. That's what's true of every human being apart from the intervention of Christ, apart from the intervention of God's grace. We all are in the situation that Jonah was in. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, also from the ESV. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead. Not alive and well, and God just needed you on His team, and oh, God, it was just lucky to have you. No, you were dead. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians, the Apostle Paul. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature inherited and chosen. We're by nature, by being human, we're by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. No difference. And then, verse 4, but God. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which He loved us. Not because of the love we had for Him. We were in rebellion. We were enemies. And yet, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead. We had nothing to offer God whatsoever. We were a rotting, decaying corpse. We could do nothing. We could contribute nothing. Nobody wants a dead corpse. They can't offer anything good. They're useless. And yet God, that's when He reached down to us. That's when He loved us. And He raised us to life with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only did He raise us up and give us life, He seated us at the place of honor and royalty, we who were dead. That's grace. Why did He do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, in other words, for all time, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, there it is again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the means of our salvation. For by grace, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It, what? What's it? The faith that we needed 
to respond to the grace that God was offering. It is the gift of God. So the very faith that you needed to put in the work of Christ and in the grace of God, even that you could not have yourself and was given to you by God. It is the gift of God, not a result of works of any kind. No one could ever do enough to get this grace. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Hallelujah. Praise God. As I said in the prayer of Elisha that we looked at when we compared with Romans 8, if that doesn't light your fire, then your wood is not just wet, it's down there in the sea with the fish. Man, this is the gospel. Do you know it? Have you responded to it today? If so, praise God. If not, respond to God today. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for even the example of a wayward prophet like Jonah, a rebellious prophet. We, we don't even know if he turned to You, finally, in true repentance, because the rest of that chapter, the rest of the book, shows us that he continued in his anger and his bitterness. He was more upset that You allowed the plant that you brought up over him to shrivel up. He was more upset about the death of his, his canopy covering him from the sun than he was about the fact that he was willing to let hundreds of thousands of people die in their sins and receive your judgment. Happier about a piece of vegetation that he didn't plant or do anything to have than he was happy about people responding to you. Oh, may we not be that way. Help us to learn from Jonah's very negative example so that we don't repeat his horrible, horrible position before you. May we never look at anyone and say, oh, they're unredeemable, or, or oh, I hope that God doesn't show them mercy. Because unless you showed us mercy and grace, we would never have any hope of redemption or reconciliation or salvation. Thank you for grace. May we be defined by it, driven by it. And for anyone that's here that is yet to receive that free gift of grace that was paid for, so that it could be free by the Lord Jesus and His death on the cross. If anyone has not yet received that, let today, this moment, be the, the time of their resurrection for Your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.